Hello, hello, and welcome again to a Beatles show that we call Things We Said Today. This is a weekly program in which we talk about anything that has to do with the Beatles, any part of their past or their present. And I'm Ken Michaels, one of the co-hosts of the show, also known for my syndicated Beatles show called Every Little Thing, being joined by my three regulars on the show, that being from Beatles examiner, Steve Marinucci. Hi, Steve. Hi, Ken. Hello, everyone. And two of the writers for Beatle Fan Magazine. We've got Alan Cozen. Hi, Alan. Hi, Ken, and hello, everyone. And we've also got Al Sussman. Hello, Al. Hi, Ken. Hello, everybody. And on uh, today's program, we've got another, we've got a special guest, the same special guest that we had last week. And that is Darren DeVivo, who does the night shift on New York's WFUV. Hi, Darren. Hello, everyone. And I thought you were going to refer to me as an irregular because you guys are the regular hosts. <laughs> Our irregular host is Darren. Abby, Abby Normal. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Well, you're a semi-regular then. Okay. All right. That works for me. On the program this time, I thought we'd talk about something that uh, I think would be a fun topic. Every now and then I come across an article online from someone writing in about Beatles songs that are not as well known or not as popular, that we should all know articles of that sort. I think we've all come across those kind of articles. So I thought that I would ask each of the guys on our panel here to name three Beatles songs that, in their estimation, they feel are either underrated or underappreciated. So I'm sure that everybody who listens to this program probably has some favorite songs of theirs that are not as well known, they're not in the upper echelon of Beatles songs. So that's what this show is all about, for us to talk about songs that we feel should be given some kind of special notice for the reasons we're about to give. So who would like to start? Let's, um, let me pick uh, Al. Okay. Um, now, uh, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. We are just talking about Beatles group songs, right? Yes, this time out. Okay, and uh, which, is, which is very challenging because obviously with, as I call it, the Rolls-Royce of pop music catalogs, it's, it's tough to imagine uh, songs that are actually, you know, underrated or unsung or underappreciated, but actually there are. There are some, which uh, especially these days where other than uh, specialized Beatles programs, you really don't hear some of these uh, all that much. Or if you do, they just kind of, you know, sort of pass uh, pass into the ether in, in a sense. The first one that I that I selected is um, is a song that was kind of um, buried twice, in effect, once on Beatles Six when that was released in June of 65, and then two months later when it was put on the, uh, the second side of the British Help album. And it's, uh, it's called Tell Me What You See. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's an interesting, it's, it's very interesting in that it's, it kind of signals the, the kind of the experimental direction that they would begin to really go in on Rubber Soul. You know, for instance, the um, uh, the harmonies, and I'll uh, I'll defer to our uh, our resident 
musician, musicologist, Mr. Cozen, the harmonies are very unusual. They're not the normal, um, even though they are Lennon-McCartney harmonies, they're not the usual kind of Everly Brothers-esque Lennon-McCartney harmonies. They're, um, uh, they're a little off, um, you know, out of the norm. And they're, uh, and they're also, and even the, the melody is even a little bit, uh, especially on, on those, on the, particularly the chorus, the, um, the verses particularly. The, uh, the melody is definitely unusual for Lennon-McCartney songs of that, uh, of that period. And, uh, you know, the lyrically, it's really more of a, you know, a typical, you know, love song, but it's, uh, but it is, it is unusual, even the, and even the instrumentation, because uh, organ is really the, uh, the predominant uh, instrument on the track, or perhaps a harmonium, uh, rather than, you know, rather than guitar. So that's mm-hmm. certainly uh, certainly one of them. Uh, Alan, would you agree on that? As far as yeah, basically, was... it, it, yeah, 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 yeah. I think you're fine. I think that I think what you're hearing in the harmonies there is um, normally when they have harmonies going, they tend to harmonize in the sense of they're actually singing different lines that mm-hmm. that fit together. And in Tell Me What You See, they're sort of singing parallel lines. You know, they're, uh. they're singing basically the same melody at a different interval. So it, it sounds almost, um, I mean, it's the kind of harmony that was used sometimes in medieval times, you know, you would you would hear basically the top line with a, a lower harmony or vice versa and and they're doing that there but yeah okay so what's the second okay the second one and uh, one would think how on earth can a song from the most famous album certainly the most famous album the beatles ever made and you know arguably the most famous album in pop music history be underappreciated but uh fixing a hole actually is it's not one of the more celebrated tracks from Sgt. Pepper, not in the way that with a little help from my friends uh, or certainly the songs that John Lennon brought to uh, uh, brought to that album. His were, were much more celebrated, but Fixing a Hole really it has the it has the elements of the, you know, the typical classic McCartney song. You know the uh, the the, the uh, earworm type of type of hook, the the kind of bouncy poppy feel, but lyrically it's kind of in in sync with the sort of quote unquote semi psychedelic uh, mood of of much of the album. You know, uh, uh, painting a room in a colorful way, and when my mind is wandering, there I will go. Uh, it's definitely different from "Got the Kitchen into My Life." Let's put it that way. So I would say mm-hmm. that that's probably uh, certainly one of the more uh, underappreciated songs, certainly from that album. And then the third one is. Um, song that we probably didn't really learn to appreciate until much later. Um, obviously, when we were, when those of us who were from the first generation of fans were, uh, were kids, the George Harrison's Indian-flavored tracks were not exactly 
favorites. Certainly the, the three main ones, Love You Too on Revolver, uh, of, I'm blanking out. Um, on Within You Without You. Within You Without You, thank you, from Sgt. Pepper. And the one I'm uh, dealing with here, uh, The Inner Light, which was the, uh, the, the B-side of the single of Lady Madonna in the spring of 1968. And it was, I, actually, I think even then, it was probably a little closer to uh, what, uh, what the you know the pop audience of that time appreciated, but still it wasn't until uh, probably quite a bit later when we when our musical tastes began to really kind of mature that we were able to appreciate it, um, and especially the treatment of it in the concert for George really has um, uh, I think that that gave a lot of us uh, a new appreciation. As in fact, um, has the uh, the instrumental treatment of it, the, the the instrumental background of it that was released uh, as part of the, um, uh, the 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 Wonderwall music uh, CD with the the the, the new uh, Apple Years George Harrison box. So um, and 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 lyrically also, it's certainly reflective of his. Uh, his emerging Hindu philosophy. So, and and plus, when you, uh, especially when you listen to the the instrumental track of it, uh, it's it's a very beautiful melody. So, I think that's if if only because it's one of those uh, Indian flavored tracks that George did as a Beatle. It's certainly an underappreciated track. So, those are my three nominees. I applaud mm. your choice of the inner light. Hell. Thanks, Darren. Now, now I feel yeah. bad I didn't pick it. <laughs> <laughs> Can I make a comment about the Please. inner light or, or, or two? Please. <laughs> I love the inner light. I, I think it's a beautiful song, and it's it's a great choice. And I thought of um, choosing it myself, um, apart from that, naturally, I came up with three much quirkier <laughs> songs. Mm. Um, but about the inner light, the funny thing about it is really that it's it's uh, George's first appearance on a single, and it is a completely purloined song in a lot of ways. I mean, mm-hmm. the lyrics, um, while those of us listening um, when we were younger would have thought of it as uh, reflecting George's Hindu interests it actually is a buddhist text yeah (laughs) it comes completely from lao tzu uh and it was from a translation that was sent to george by someone named juan mascaro who um had had compiled uh a bunch of not not just lao tzu but a bunch of eastern texts and sent george the book and George took the lyrics with with very little change. And let's face it, they were totally public domain, given that they were allowed to. Sure. Um, and then went to India, where he was working on Wonderwall, and got a group of musicians to basically do the backing track. And, and the question mm-hmm. is whether, okay, we know that the lyrics weren't really his. I mean, he... he took them and shaped them and made them into his lyric. But um, the question is what the music is. Did, did he actually have 
you know, any tune input or anything like that into the music mm. or, or was mm. he just listening to what the Indian musicians were doing and then fitting it to, to this lyric, but whatever it is, you know, the finished product really is quite beautiful. Yes. Um, I've always loved that song and, um, and good choice, but that just wanted to provide that textual footnote. Oh, that's great. Thank <laughs> you. Do you remember, does anyone remember the very first time that they, uh, flipped the Lady Madonna single over and played the inner light. Your, I do. as as you know, your what, what you thought as a as a young boy hearing this for the first time. Mm -hmm. I remember it very well, uh, and it was because uh, I had not been a fan of either "Love You Too" or uh, "Within You Without You." You know, I just found them. You know, just not very interesting musically and i just i found that the um that the melody of the inner light was a little uh, a little more accessible than the other two had been which is interesting mm -hmm. because i mean now within you without you i consider one of the most beautiful songs <laughs> in the entire beatles catalog mm. but you know i guess that's just a matter of uh you know getting uh in a more mature taste but yeah, on that first listen, it was uh, you know it, it it was certainly still you know strange to hear the the Indian instrumentation, but it was it was a little bit more accessible than um, than the other two. You know, given that what we had heard until then was you know, love you too. And within you and without you, mm -hmm. um, the inner light was a lot livelier. Yes. And it was a lot shorter mm -hmm. and the lyrics, which I, I mean, I had no idea at the time where the lyrics came from, but right. they seemed really kind of cool. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, um, if I don't really remember the first time I listened to it, but I, I'm sure that if there was any trepidation left over from, from, you know, th assuming it might be like within you, without you, I think just playing the record sort of dispelled that pretty quickly. It, it, it just seemed sort of like a normal Beatles song, except with Indian instruments. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I always thought the, the melody sounded just beautiful, even as a little kid listening to it. And, um, you know, kind of like if you want to say it's more commercial than the other Indian tracks, mm -hmm. um, certainly much more than Within You, Without You. And um, mm -hmm. very easy to remember the lyrics because he repeats them. Yeah, and right. by the time yeah. by the time that the song's done, it just seems like it's like so many of their their singles that they're very short and you want to hear it again. So, uh, no, I always found the, the melody to be just exquisite. And the way that George sings it is just uh, I love his vocals on it. And uh I found it very easy to take in, even as uh, I would have been eight or nine then. Mm. So, uh, yeah, no, I love the song very quickly. The instrumental background on that is wonderful. That yes, you, it is. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Any other comments about Al's other suggestions? I know, Darren, you like the, uh, his choice. Fixing a hole was that a surprise for anybody? Um, no, um, yeah. When I when I heard the inner light, my first reaction was, "Oh, that should have been one of mine." That would <laughs> that definitely. I mean, if there's a three B in my list, that it would be the inner light, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Who wants to go next? How about you, Darren? Okay. Um, first one is another George. Actually, of my three, 
uh, of my three songs, there are two George Harrisons. And up first is It's All Too Much. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And it to me, it is just in its six plus minutes, everything glorious about the entire uh, psychedelic thing that was going on at that time. And it was the Beatles once again hitting a home run in, in, in capturing this, you know, multicolored uh, liquid light show, paisley, psychedelic image. Um, from the feedback at the beginning and, uh, and uh, the organ, the Ringo's drums, the, the way it fades out mm-hmm. at the end, it's just an explosion of of color and there's no way you can not listen to it's all too much and just not in your mind have this incredibly incredible psychedelic thing uh happening i don't i you know i don't i I was i was five when they broke up so i picked up on a lot of stuff after the fact and uh, i realized much later uh, in life that not counting the movie Yellow Submarine, which was mid-68, when the album Yellow Submarine comes out in January 69, how kind of out of place uh, the Beatles songs on that album were in comparison to where they were musically, that these mm-hmm. were already old songs. It was a been there, done mm-hmm. that thing for the Beatles. It's all oh, too yeah. much. You know, <laughs> to me, it was like, Wow. What another great song, and it fit alongside uh, whatever Rubber Soul track I was discovering maybe at that time in the by the mid seventies, <laughs> early seventies, whenever. So it's all too much. Has always been my uh, incredible orgy of Beatles psychedelia. Um, I mean, I I just love listening to that loud, very loud. Mm. Oh yeah, good choice, <laughs> good mm-hmm. choice. In a way, I kind of wish they had done more of that. Actually, you know, and 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 and, and to some extent, I maybe I it could be considered. A th- I almost picked it's only a northern song, mm-hmm. uh, but I thought, all right, I can't take them both. Let me take one of the two. I think it's all too much. Has all similar qualities uh, to it in the you know maybe the length thing. Hey Jude, it's all too much. Long fade outs. It just mm. seemed to sum everything up that was Sergeant Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour, and Yellow Submarine in six minutes. And mm-hmm. uh, there's also something about that, that one of the last lines in the song, and your, uh, with your long blonde hair and your eyes of blue for Patty is just, mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. there's just that line is... Although, uh, of course, he, they, he stole that he, line from... From the, Sorrow. Uh, from Sorrow, yep. right? Yeah. Oh, Okay. So that's number one for me. It's all too much, although I should say maybe these are in no particular order. Number two is uh, another George song, which initially was a B-side, and I discovered it with on the Hey Jude album, which was one of my first Beatle albums I ever owned and might have been the first one that I actually asked for when I walked by the record store and said, I want that, and that's Old Brown Shoe. Mm. Mm-hmm. The thing that I love about Old Brown Shoe is McCartney's bass. Mm-hmm. on that song i mean i'm like uh uh i mean going back to last week's show paul is sort of my favorite beetle and when uh i mean i just can't get over the bass lines in that song i don't know Darren? what the song's about yes 
Yeah. Um, George actually said that it was he that played the bass on that song. That's pretty, really. I didn't yeah. know that. And if that's the case, then uh, it's too bad George didn't play some more bass uh, <laughs> because that's that's a killer line on that song. Yeah. And it's just one of those ones. Maybe I think Old Brown Shoe also benefits. I'm sure we all have our Beatles songs that are classics, but we're a little, a little tired of hearing maybe a hit mm-hmm. uh, that you might hear on the oldies stations a little too much. Mm. So I'm always like uh, jumping over to something like something like Old Brown Shoe, a tune that you won't hear on the radio. But uh, wow, George played bass on that. See you. Well, he he said that in Cream Magazine, around the time when Cloud Nine came out. You learn mm-hmm. something new every day. I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. So so Paul plays the piano part. Um, right. I think. Didn't I? Not was that, that would have precluded him from playing the bass, but all right. But in any of any event, even if it's uh, even if it's Ken playing bass, uh, <laughs> Old Brown Shoe remains on my list. It's just I just think it's a great song. Uh, just a great song that just kind of. Something has to get full through the cracks, and uh, that did. And um, my last one is I'll Follow the Sun. Mm. Um, Not the type of song that you tend to hear on the radio all that often, but to me, I'll Follow the Sun holds its weight alongside other classic acoustic-based Beatles songs like uh, and well-known ones like uh, maybe Norwegian Wood, trying to think of another one of that era that you'll you'll hear on the radio a lot but i'll follow the sun a little earlier than that actually the norwegian wood uh, i'll follow the sun to me it was always a, a beautiful perfect melody it's just a great uh sentiment it just really uh i remember hearing it for the first time i think was when i got the love songs album uh that's when i discovered it for the first time and uh it's always been a favorite of mine from that point to today. And it's interesting because that's actually one of Paul's earliest songs. I'll follow the sun. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If you listen, there's the, the bootleg of the quarry men rehearsing yes. it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the interesting yeah. thing, uh, the interesting part about that is, is that the song is much longer and there's other sections of the song, mm-hmm. which obviously Paul felt rightfully so needed to be taken out. So uh, it worked much better as a shorter piece so it's always interesting to hear whether it's the Beatles anthology or on Beatle bootlegs songs that are not complete, that are missing part of what eventually they released on their on their recordings mm. or when they had when they had parts of, of a song that they later didn't use, which was the case of Off All of the Sun. So. Right. But um, and also I, as, I, a, as a, a footnote to to Darren's first choice, um, it's all too much. There's a verse on the Yellow Submarine movie soundtrack that is not in the finished recording. So it's it's another one of those things, sort of like what you were saying. I'd love to hear the whole unedited track, you know. Love to be a fly on the wall in the studio when they were doing the uh, Too Much Chance and how long that went on for and how what Mm. kind of silliness that kind of ended up going and what direction that went. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll never forget... uh, seeing the remastered Yellow Submarine in the Castro Theater in San Francisco and getting to that 
getting to uh, that song at the end. It was uh, it was absolutely mind blowing to see it in in vivid color. I mean, in the the remastered vivid color, and then mm-hmm. uh, on the on that big screen with the stereo speakers on both sides. It was uh, it was amazing. And to think that they recorded something like it's all too much on what today is viewed as primitive recording mm-hmm. equipment. And oh that's yeah, what they I, came, and that's what they came up with. I always marvel at that. That you know, Sergeant Pepper was recorded on four tracks. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, I kind of look at it's all too much as being George's "All You Need Is Love." Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would agree it's with good. that. Yeah, it's it's kind yeah, of it's probably, got that probably. that universality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, definitely uh, feel that way. And "Old Brown Shoe," that's a song that I just appreciate so much more now than ever before because the song really builds. It mm-hmm. really kicks butt, you know, and um, mm-hmm. I especially love the version that Gary Brooker did at uh, the concert for George. Yes. It's, just, it's just a great rocker overall. And that could have been, I don't know, maybe you guys would disagree with me. I think that that could have been an A-side. Yeah, it could have been. You, one other thing that just struck me now, I don't know exactly what they did to his vocal, but I just always liked, and I couldn't, don't ask me why, I just always liked George's vocal on that, the way it's mixed. Mm-hmm. Seems to be a little bit in the background, a little under everything else. Just it just struck a chord with me, right? Really? I think, I think around that time, I think uh, several of his vocals from that period are kind of undermixed. You know, long, long, long is certainly an example of that, mm-hmm. uh, where you know his his vocal is certainly not out front. Uh, you know, I don't know whether that was his his wish or George Martin or whoever, but it's it is interesting that, if, that there's a few songs from that time where his vocal is not really out front in the way that uh, certainly the you know the Lennon and McCartney vocals are. Right, right. Sometimes I think that long, long, long. It starts off so soft. Yeah, and that was that was done intentionally to follow the loudness of Helter Skelter. Yes, like that was yeah. done intentionally as a contrast of the two. Mm-hmm. So, mm. um, yeah, and and George's vocals obviously were very soft in the very beginning to match that. So right. See, I I, I think I just have to agree, disagree with you, Darren. I think I wished his vocals had been mixed up a little more on that song. Um, I I I think it would have sounded better. Oh, myself. so you okay. So that does, yeah, I don't know. There's just something about, and I couldn't really tell you what I hear and what appeals to me about it. It just appealed to me, but I couldn't totally understand that being to someone else thinking, uh, were they paying attention when they mixed this? You know. Well, you know what it what it does what it does for me is it it creates um, a feeling, and I'm maybe I'm interpreting too much here, but. Inter- uh, creating the feeling that it's a lesser song, it doesn't really give it the respect it deserves. Because I think it's—I agree with you—it's a hell of a rocker, and I love the uh, you know the slide guitar and all that. I, I think mm-hmm. that's that's w- one thing I've always wanted to be able to. That's why you know I mean several George songs I would love to be able to pl- actually play, and that's one mm-hmm. of them yeah. because it's just it just sounds so good. And that when he does the slide guitar with the, I mean that's just I mean that's just I mean. The power behind that slide is just fantastic. And uh, so, you know. And his solo on that, too. As we're talking mm-hmm. about it, I'm playing it in my head. 
Yeah. And, 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 and his solo is simple but so powerful. Mm -hmm. Right. No brown right. shoe. Now mm -hmm. somebody here, somebody's going to tell me that was Ringo playing lead guitar on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Completely there throwing me off. Here. <laughs> there we go. So there's my three. Okay. And, he, and, and Al just mentioned long, long, long. And again, I thought, oh, I might have considered that for mine had I thought of it. Mm. But yeah, that's definitely underappreciated. Yeah. Okay. How, who wants to be next? How about Steve? Okay. I will. Let's see. I'll, I'll go with the probably the, the least deep song first. And I'll go to the other ones. But uh, the, it was actually the last one I picked is uh, You Really Got a Hold on Me. Because it is really one of their best covers of all the covers they did, and in, in the, and the reason I I came to that conclusion was when I heard the um, the Supremes a bit of Liverpool album, and the Supremes picked that song, put that song on there as one of the because that whole song, whole album, if you're familiar with it, is a bunch of you know British invasion songs, mm -hmm. and although that's a Smokey Robinson song. They put it on there because the Beatles did it, and the Beatles did a great version, and the Supremes version is also really, really good. But it really shows you how much Motown really respected that version of the, that they did. And, um, you know, I think we all tend to kind of, you know, pass it by and let it go. And I think that's a that's really one hell of a cover that they did there. So that's my that's my first pick. The second one is Christmas Time is Here Again. <laughs> and I, I've always marveled at the fact that um, they were, Lennon and McCartney took the Lennon and McCartney formula and were able to create a, a wonderful Christmas song. And it's, it's like the only original on any of the Christmas records. But they were able to pick, pick up this, you know, make this song. And it's it's just absolutely fantastic. I mean, you, you would think it's, I mean, it could have fit in any Beatles album. And of course, they didn't put it on a Beatles album until, you know, and, well, they didn't put, they really, I don't, I can't remember if they put it on the anthology. I know it was on one of the singles. It was on one of the singles. Yeah, right. But, um, I mean, I, that thing always stuck out. And I remember looking for the bootlegs and the long version and, you know, the, the, tre the only, the uh, song only version where it's just them singing and there's none of the the stuff over it i mean i i love that song i think that's a great song it's just a uh i think it's a it's a it's a really a masterpiece and, and it just really in in shows you the genius of lennon and mccartney at that time that they could make a christmas song like that out of, with their formula and do such a great job so and then the third one is actually a combination of two, and I kind of cheated on this one. Um, Free as a Bird and Real Love. Mm. And I've talked about this before, that I think there was, uh, I remember, you know, sitting there that night watching the first anthology. And um, I'm not, not ashamed to say it. Um, my eyes were wet after me, hearing Free as a Bird. Me too. Me three. And, and mm. you know, and I think that song not only was a great song, the video was stunning. Sure. I mean, the, the way mm -hmm. that they crafted that video with all the clues, they, I mean, they knew what they were doing. They knew who was going to see it. They knew, you know, that was, that was a work of love right there. 
but uh, that song, both of those songs, "Free the Bird" and "Real Love," were, um, you know, were really kind of um, therapy for them and for us. And mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I've really, and and I don't think, and I've heard people say they're not part of the Beatles canon because it came later, and I really have to say you know i really don't think that's true i mean they did such a a great job with those demos and i'm only sorry that now and then couldn't it hasn't come out and i hope at some point they decide to put that out but i mean i think they did a fantastic job and uh it was it's absolutely fantastic so but if you have to pick one which one would it be if I have to pick one, obviously it's going to be Free as a Bird because okay. it was the first. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to confess here that when I interviewed Yoko many years ago, I kind of went out of my role as a journalist and I said, you know, I have to really thank you on behalf of the fans. And she was very touched by that. And so, um, I, I mean, that was kind of a, a weird thing to say. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I really, it, it, that song really. I think helped everybody. It was a big, it was a big uh, help for everybody. So well said, well said. Mm-hmm. Mm. Here we go. Well, I, yeah, I, I would say I applaud you very much on uh, what you just said about free as a bird and real love. And uh, you know, when you think about what Jeff Lynne had to work with, the end result was just incredible. It really was. <laughs> and I appreciate the fact, especially with free as a bird, they let it's it's the only song, with the exception of shout where you've got three lead vocals from mm-hmm. a Beatle, um, although Shout had four, but that's the only one I could think of with three separate lead vocals, and they, they made sure George got, you know, a few lines in there, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that was very touching. Um, that's a, that's yeah, a good I, point. I, I, didn't, I didn't even think about that, but, yeah, that's, no, that's a good point. But so. uh, Jeff Lynne worked wonders, and I think especially, for some reason, as much as I love Free as a Bird, I think real love seemed to flow a lot better. Mm-hmm for the Beatles, mm. maybe because the song was more intact and more complete, whereas they had to do a little bit of patchwork on Free as a Bird and add more in the middle eight of the song. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, but mm-hmm. they were both great. And, and I really love uh, the lead guitar work from George on both those songs. You know, the one in Real Love, especially, it just, um, it, just it, it flows so naturally. It's so perfect for the song. And the one in Free as a Bird just grabs you in the gut you know, what he plays mm-hmm. on, on lead there. So, but by the same token, I hate to say this, Steve, but I have to disagree completely with you with Christmas time is here again, only <laughs> because the fact that while, while I love it, um, I don't recognize it as a song because it's nothing more than a chorus that gets repeated over and over again. I, it's kind of frustrating for me that, you know, the Beatles could have just given us, if they gave us one complete Christmas song, I would have been very happy with it. But we have all these wonderful Christmas messages that are great documents of their time. And they're so much fun to listen to. And they really tell you from year to year where their minds were at. And I think that the the messages reflect that. But, you know, Christmas time is here again. If there were verses in the song, it would have been a more complete song. Instead, Instead, it's just the same chorus repeated over and over again. And then they inserted whatever they put in their messages in between that. Right. So it, I don't really look at it as a song, you know, it's just, yeah. um, I wish I, that they I, had done something that was more complete. That's all. Well, uh, they, they, they actually did because, uh, I, you know, I know we, we were trying to stick with release stuff here for, you know, 
uh, they actually did with the, with the bootleg versions. You know, there's those those bootleg versions that are more complete. But I was, I, I mean, I was actually kind of going on the chorus there because I, I love that chorus. Even though all they do is just repeat "Christmas time is here again" and Ringo goes, you know, Ringo drums and and everything. And uh, but I, I, you know, I I think that works just fine. And, and and unfortunately, I think because of the fact that it's on the Christmas discs, which Apple, if you're listening, would you release those damn things, please? <laughs> um, you know, um. I, you know, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic chorus. I mean, like I said, it's you know Lennon and McCartney genius right there. So now, one thing uh-huh. though, uh, before Go ahead, Go ahead, before, before we get the the social media types, uh, you know, uh-huh. uh, going at us, um, that actually is not the only uh, original uh, song on the Christmas uh, the Christmas discs. Because the the previous one, the one from '66, "Everywhere It's Christmas," that's oh, right, also right. kind of an original <laughs> yeah. song. Plus, also right. Paul did those two little ditties on the '68 and '69 uh, Christmas records. Mm-hmm. Actually, Paul did his own little Christmas album in '64 that got well, uh, yeah, right, the privately pressing that sure. uh, that got bootlegged, uh, you know, a few years ago. Right, and that's. But that, uh, I, as I recall, there's not anything original on that. Um, mm. Most of that is, is all stuff picked up uh, elsewhere. But I applaud Steve picking "Christmas Time Is Here Again" for, because it displays all the all the quirky Beatles charms. Now, granted, we're probably the only ones who would appreciate this stuff, but mm-hmm. it it um, it captures in ridiculously it's it's ridiculously si- simple, but it just captures that Beatle charm that you would hear in something like Wild Honey Pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, off the wall, nonsensical. You think you could do it the same way? Uh, well, try. I mean, I mean, even, even when they were kind of maybe just throwing something up against the wall, nobody threw things up against the wall better than the Beatles did. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I love when... You know, I never get tired of it when the holidays roll around of playing, pulling out my uh, my bootleg CD and and, and hearing there mm-hmm. the full the full version of it, just because it's so much fun. Mm-hmm. And I love that Ringo recorded it, which helped for "I Want to Be Santa Claus," which kind of mm-hmm. helped legitimize it a bit in the Beatles canon, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I think the Smithereens did I, too, didn't they? I think they did. Uh, yes. yes. Yes, yep. did, as a matter of fact. Uh, and it's funny that it took us, what, 45 years to find, for at least us, the American audience, to find out what O-U-T spells out <laughs> actually meant mm-hmm. when uh, Queenie actually mean? When Queenie I was, uh, was released uh, on the, the new album. And Paul explained... You know, in the interviews, that it's that um, uh, that O U T spells out is the you know one of the lines in that game in the game oh, Queenie really? Eye. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And really, uh, seemed like in every interview he talked about that. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, I thought I thought 
it was just one of his um, little compositional devices, um, which normally, when he can't think of something, he'll count. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> oh, seven, all yeah. good children go to heaven, or one, two, three, four, five, let's go for a drive. Yeah. Um, there, there are a number of instances of him counting, and I thought maybe he decided <laughs> to change it out to, you know, spelling. <laughs> no, in fact, it, it was apparently uh, it's Queenie Eye is a street game, I guess, not unlike, uh, you know, here in America, Ring Alivio, things like that. And right. the kind of the ultimate of a round of, of Queenie Eye is uh, that the, the, the last person that has the ball says O-U-T spells out. So, right. so right. It was, like I said, it took us, what, 45 years here in America, at least, <laughs> to find out what on earth that meant. Now we need a Major League Baseball umpire to do that. There you go. Exactly. At home plate. O-U-T. Right. Jeez. So am I the only one here that doesn't recognize Christmas Time is Here Again, you know, as something? I mean, I love the song because I love the charm of it, you know, and it, it worked really well on the Christmas messages. But the fact that it's not, you know, in my mind, a complete song. And the other ones that you were talking about, Al, those aren't complete either. No. You know, those little... are real snippets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But to, you know, to and they def- work well in that context. Right. But to defend Christmas Time is Here Again, it did. Uh, I mean, I, the fact that it was uh, picked to, I mean, to be used in heavily edited form as a B-side of uh, Free as a Bird, if, right, I believe? Not real mm-hmm. love. It was Free as a Bird. The B-side of Free as a Bird. Yeah. And then Ringo recorded it, I think, kind of uh, kind of makes it a little more valid mm-hmm. uh, to be to be to be picked. But see, I didn't. I, I have to admit, I didn't. I, think I understand about that. your point, Ken. You know, they're yeah. just I, but, um, you know, I, the Beatles' own recording is the the one that's on the bootleg is like what six minutes long. They're doing that, mm-hmm. even though it's just a chorus or a refrain. They're they're doing it for a while, and they seem to be having fun doing that. And there's a certain charm to that, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, why don't we move on and hear Alan's choices? Okay, you'll be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, in to, <laughs> I'm already. I, I think I can figure my, out uh, <laughs> reputation for being. <laughs> I bet you could. Um, the first one, of course, is Revolution Number Nine. <laughs> you were counting on that, right? Um, yes, I was. And you know, I, I, I really actually love Revolution Number Nine. I, I don't think I'm the only one in the world who does. In fact, I do know one other person who does. He's um, a guy named Matt Marks, who is a composer and French horn player in a group called Alarm Will Sound. And Matt Marks actually did an orchestrated version of Revolution Number Nine, which Alarm Will Sound, which is a, a new music orchestra, performs on occasion. Wow. Um, and yeah. And um, so I just recently ran into him when I was covering that um, new music festival out in San Francisco. He was one of the people running it. And I gave him a, a copy of the track of uh, the Revolution, unedited version that Revolution Number no. 9 is based on. What I've always really liked about Revolution Number no. 9, or Revolution 9 as it's actually called, is that, um, you know, it. You have to see it really as part of this trilogy of revolutions that John has. Now, the fact is, he didn't, undoubtedly, he didn't set out to make a trilogy of revolutions, but he ended up with a trilogy of revolutions that tell 
story. Um, the story that begins with the acoustic, slow, kind of laconic revolution one, um, where he's kind of not sure whether when you talk about destruction, you can count him out or in. Mm. Then the second one, it gets much more intense. He doesn't give that one a number. I would say it's like, should be really like revolution number five or something you know because things have really heated up it's very intense it's very electric it's kind of on the edge of danger there and that's revolution the flip side of the hey jude single and he already knows that when you talk about destruction you can count them out you get to revolution number nine and that's the revolution and if you listen to it with that in mind and you listen to it as kind of a sound painting it shows everything falling apart it's it, it shows you know it, it's it's scary really as uh, as as candy leonard's interviewees told her about mm-hmm. a lot of the quirkier beatles songs um it, i mean it, i think it's meant to be scary it has that very dark atmosphere it has these things that kind of don't make sense but you can see being conversations of you know a, a society falling apart or a, you know someone in the background talking about all the dance moves um mm. yoko saying you know they become naked you know mm. just, it, just everything is it's just so strange but if you listen to it uh, you you hear it at a certain point what sounds like uh, i think they're pouring something but on, on the recording it sounds like a flame starting up mm-hmm. um, if you listen to it with that all that in mind and coming out of revolution one and revolution um, it, it kind of completes the picture of what John saw the revolution being because you know John was criticized for putting out revol- revolution as a single because for people who really wanted a revolution he was kind of standing aside and saying you know let me see the plan I want to know what you have in mind because I think he was afraid of happening what you hear in Revolution 9. Apart from that, I just love it as a piece of electronic music. I mean, in my other job, you know, as a classical music critic, I listen to an awful lot of electronic music, and a lot of it is not nearly as well-made as this piece is. I always thought that um, EMI's classical line should release an album with that, Carnival of Light, and... uh, and some of the other uh, experiments they did. Um, but anyway, so that's my first one. That was the hmm. B-side of Carnival of Light you just heard. <laughs> I see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so my second one, assuming <laughs> there's no uh, pushback here, is You Know My Name, Look Up the Number. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. I just knew that was, was going to be your second choice. I knew it. Okay. <laughs> you know, for similar reasons. I mean, it, we're looking for stuff that's underappreciated, and I certainly can't remember the last time I heard that on the radio. Um, I don't it. think I ever heard it on the radio during the Beatles era. You, know? you, you should did, listen you to my show. I've okay. played it. Yay. <laughs> well, well, there you go. I like the fact that we got an alternate version on an anthology, although George insisted on editing it. But fortunately, all the stuff he edited was on the single. So people have been able to reconstruct the full version using both the single 
and the anthology version. Uh, problem is, of course, that goes back and forth between stereo and mono because the mm. single was only mono, mm. but not for long. So it, it, it's it, I, I don't find that that troubling. Um, I think you know what John has created there, and and I say John, but I mean they were all, all clearly very active participants in this. They created this picture of a very bizarre kind of lounge, you know, with a semi-jazz singer and all kinds of different beats going on and, uh, mm -hmm. and changes of meter and changes of tempo, changes of harmony, changes of song in a way. It's, it's, it's one of those sort of collage songs like A Day in the Life, you know, mm -hmm. you, you can see little bits of it having been composed at different times and stuck together. And I remember the first time I, when I got the Let It Be single home and played it, I just thought it was hilarious. You, you know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine, you know, th these are the guys who were putting out two-minute singles only a few years earlier and, uh, you know, I want to hold your hand, nothing, nothing, there's anything wrong with that. And here they were doing this, which was just so out there. Um, I loved it. And so, so my third choice, actually, I had two potential third choices. One that I didn't choose, but I'll just mention, would have been George's Not Guilty, which was an outtake from mm. the White Album, ended up in the anthology, so it counts. Mm. Um, I like the way it airs some of the um, backstage problems they were having um, in a very typically George way. But the one I really want to choose is what should have been the B-side of You Know My Name, Look Up the Number, if John had his way and put it out as a single. Uh-oh. Which, of uh -oh. course, was what's the new Mary Jane. <laughs> no, you thought I was going to say Life with the Lions. Yes. <laughs> yes, I was waiting for Life But I didn't. <laughs> But no, what's the new Mary Jane? Um, I have to say, I prefer the ones that came out on bootleg on that um, big 12-inch single years ago. Mm -hmm. I prefer that to the one that they put on the anthology. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, also on the Esher tapes, those demos that they made at George's house before going in to record the White Album, they did a demo of what's the new Mary Jane. So it's obviously not just some you know, thing that happened in the studio one afternoon when they were high. It's a song that John wrote, had in mind what he wanted to do and um, did it, in, you know, and I, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting tune. It's um, I suppose if uh, uh, Christmas time is here again, isn't a song. What's the new Mary Jane probably isn't either since it's total lyric is what a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party. Um, no, there are, you know, I like verses. that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. There are verses. Yeah. She liked to be married with Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> she cooking such groovy spaghetti. How could I forget? Um, yeah. OK, so there are. You're right. You're right. It's a much better song than Christmas time is here again. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, again, was a kind of a fun song. I liked getting it as a bootleg. I was a little disappointed with the, the, the version or the mix on the anthology, but I, I enjoyed having it out there, really, as a, as a sort of finished song. So those are my three. You could kind of mm -hmm. say, particularly in the case of, of uh, You Know My Name and even What's the New Mary Jane, that they both come out of 
the you know kind of the satire boom that was very big in England at that time, and also mm-hmm. going all the way back to you know the influence that the Goon Shows had on right. had on the Beatles, particularly on on John Lennon, because in fact, um, you know, my name is not all that different from what they were doing on the 1967 Christmas record, the one that has Christmas time mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. You know, again, that, that sort of uh, uh, very satirical tone, you know. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's funny because they completed it, what, I guess, very shortly before the debut of Monty Python, which was obviously maybe mm-hmm. the, the most uh, fully realized offshoot of the satire boom so mm. it's all you know and of- since you mentioned that since mm. you mentioned that i mean really these these two songs um apart from the christmas albums are re- really the only evidence we have of that side yes. of 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 them which was a really important part of their background that goons thing yeah mm-hmm. yeah I mean, it, much. Was, it was why they got along with george martin so instantly and, because uh, he had produced very, them very true now, as time goes on, you begin to realize how George Martin proved to be the the perfect producer for them in every sense of the word, given his background before the Beatles, not just with the Goons, right. but doing uh, classical music, too. So, yeah. uh, I remember when uh, Let It Be came out, and like I mentioned before, I was five at the time of the breakup and had Let It Be when it was brand new. You know my name, look up the number, Scared me something awful because at five years old i had no idea what was going on and i was terrified of playing that song i never played the you know i always avoided because i had this thing about when i play my singles when i was a little kid i'd always listen to the Mm b-side didn't happen with let it be until i got a little older and uh now i always would you know i i get a kick out of the few times I'll pull it out and play it on WFUV, wondering, what is the audience thinking right now? <laughs> but uh, that's a great pick. And what was your reaction to Revolution 9 when, that, when you first heard that? I was, I think, I think I got the White Album in 76 when I was 11. Mm-hmm. And I think I already was prepared. I had heard about this song, you know, and... Uh, I was fascinated, always have been fascinated by it. Uh, when I'm in, uh, when I'm playing the White Album and um, uh, there are people with an earshot, I'll sometimes spare them and skip it. Uh, <laughs> but when I'm listening to it on my own, uh, I'm always kind of trying to dissect it, looking for something different that I haven't heard the first thousand times I listened to it. <laughs> In fact, it's interesting. Picks. It's interesting that the Fab Foe, when they yeah. when they do yeah. their the full <laughs> albums, they will do on stage. Will do Revolution Nine. So I wonder uh, how they pull that yeah. off, though. Um, you know, with a lot of tape uh, loops and things. Mm. You know, a lot of maybe not tape loops, but you know, synthesizer tricks. <laughs> yeah. You know, now that it's out there, that full tape of take 20 of revolution one where you know the the last several minutes of which becomes the basis of revolution number nine that's something that they really ought to release in in some form because um you get a bit of insight into you know what actually was going on at the end of that take in the studio i mean the 
part where Yoko is saying they become naked is is actually in the original take. It wasn't a, a later edition. Um, so it's sort of interesting to to hear all that. And and if they ever do another anthology or uh, or rarities collection, I hope they include that hmm. and Carnival wow. Light. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but. Um... You know, I love the fact that you chose Revolution Number Nine there, Alan, because uh, I, I look at it as being a very moody piece, and it's very fascinating to listen to, especially with headphones on. But I do remember as a little kid listening, and, and it really did scare me, especially the flames, like you were referring to, mm-hmm. and hearing uh, mm-hmm. "Take this, brother, may it serve you well," and not knowing what all this meant. You know, you kind of felt like mm-hmm. an apocalypse was happening or something, as, or about to happen. And I think as, that was the idea. Yeah. yeah, and and also especially since that was used as one of the uh, elements of the whole Paul is dead uh, phenomenon. Right. For want of a better word. El Dorado. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I guess that leaves me that with leaves my you. top three. Mm-hmm. All right, well, for me, the top two were very easily, but there could have been like 20 songs that ranked number three for me, so... Um, I very randomly picked for my number three song, I'll Be Back. I think I'll Be Back is one of the best of the songs of 1964. It's got a great melody and a great hook to it. And I love the fact that there was a little bit more work put behind it because apart from having the verses and then what was, um, I guess it would be either the bridge or the middle eight, the uh, I love you so, I'm the one who wants you. But then all of a sudden out of nowhere, you got John singing, I thought that you would realize that part. So it's like, it's got mm-hmm. all these different sections in it. So, you know, they mm-hmm. packed into uh, two, two and a half minutes, you know, a lot of work into that one song. Apart from the fact that it's a, another great harmony song, like so many songs in the Beatles canon. But, um, you know, it's just a wonderful song that I don't think has ever been given its due. I think people like it, but it's never been placed way up there, you know, in the... Uh, of all the the Beatles songs, all the great Beatles songs that they put out. You know, to me, I kind of look at this. I don't think there's any song in the Beatles catalog that should be considered obscure. To me, knowing the Beatles catalog is like learning the alphabet. You know, there's no letter that you should leave out. So, um, but that being said, in every artist catalog, there's always their most well-known songs, then their lesser known songs, no matter who you're talking about. But, um, you know, I also wanted to put Yes, It Is in there as my third choice, but that would probably be kind of equal with um, with I'll Be Back. Mm-hmm. My number two song, without a doubt, is a song that I appreciate so much more now than I ever have, and that's Julia. I think Julia is an absolute masterpiece. It's a beautiful song, and I think that um, the fact that it's just John and an acoustic guitar, it couldn't have been done any better. I love the soft vocal delivery of John's voice in there which matched the song completely lyrically it's just an absolutely stunning song it flows together so well um and i do love the fact that even though the beatles the beatles didn't invent this but the melody of the song it's the same note for quite a while you know half of what i say is meaningless but i say it just to reach you julia Mm. then it drops but for a long time it's on that same one note but there are chords, different chords being played while the same note is being sung. So I think that's kind of a brilliant thing that the Beatles did in that song. But, um, you know, as I've said many times, um, there's two different issues when you, come, when you discuss the Beatles. One is the songs, then there's, their, there's the recordings. And even though 
the four Beatles brought so much to their recordings in so many instances. You've got many cases, especially on the White Album, where you've got just one Beatle or two Beatles. And that's all that was really necessary. Just like, you know, Blackbird is perfect the way it is, Paul on acoustic guitar. Julia is perfect the way it is, just John on acoustic guitar. So, um, you know, I really can't even picture that song with a band accompaniment because it's so perfect just the way that it was presented with John and an acoustic, you know, so um, and the sentiment in that song and, and combining his thoughts about his mother, mixing that with Yoko is perfect. Mm. Um, so I just I really look at Julia as being an undersung masterpiece in the Beatles catalog. And uh, so that's why I picked that as number two. And my number one song is Within You Without You. Mm -hmm. um, mainly because of the fact that I think that there's so much going on in that song. It was so way ahead of its time lyrically mm -hmm. for all the Eastern philosophy that was put in there. And the mere fact that, you know, it's, you could say this about a lot of songs that the Beatles recorded, that they were so young when they did this. Yes. The fact that, that George absorbed Eastern philosophy and Eastern culture so well and mm -hmm. expressed that lyrically in this song and it was just way ahead of its time. I mean, there's so many people, even still to this day, that when they play Sgt. Pepper, they tell me they skip Within You Without You. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a five-minute song, and there's so much going on in it. And especially, and maybe, Alan, you can, you can fill us in on this, because I don't know if this is the very first time when Eastern, in, uh, Eastern instruments were mixed with the Western string instruments. And it was like a perfect marriage of the two of them. I mean, I can only imagine um, the amount of work that was put together by George Martin and with George Harrison looking over how the two of them were just combined together the way that they were because it was just so absolutely brilliant, you know. And uh, you mix that with the lyrics of the song, you know, it was just so it's a, a stunning piece of work that every time I listen to it now, I can't believe George Harrison was 23 years old writing mm -hmm. this, you know, and um, you talk about being a fly on the wall on Beatles sessions, and there's so many we'd love to have been a part of, but just to witness this, to see how this all came together, the marriage of the, the different stringed instruments, you know, it's just um, something that really fascinates me, and I'd love to know how much George Harrison, in particular, not just with Within You Without You, but with all the Indian stuff that he did, how involved he really was with the arrangements of everything. But um, maybe you can fill us in, Alan, on what I was just saying. Um, well, it 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 probably wasn't the first to combine Indian and Western string instruments. Um, in 1965, 66, Ravi Shankar did a soundtrack for a movie called Chappaqua that used both Western orchestras and Indian instruments. And as an interesting footnote, one of the young orchestrators helping him work on it was Philip Glass, um, uh -huh. who subsequently became a very famous composer. Sure. Um, also, um, Shankar did other things possibly before that. I mean, he was very aware of Western orchestras and uh, and was writing ballets for, for the West and that kind of thing. And I think he combined them too. But, but certainly for rock listeners, none of us would have heard anything like that before. I'm trying to and remember think, the, uh, uh, the Butterfield Blues Band, the East West album. When, when did that come mm -hmm. out? That was 66, I think. Okay, so that uh, that would precede that. I think it was 66. Mm -hmm. Did that have an orchestra? No. 
interesting. So, um, yeah, but you know, George George Martin's string score for that was just beautiful. Oh uh, yeah, especially given that um, he was actually pretty critical of it. If you if you read some of his, uh, you know, he's written three or four memoirs, and he and he talks about uh, within you, without you, and and he says that he basically didn't like it, and yet. He wrote this masterly score, um, <laughs> which we got to hear really much better in the anthology version without yes. the vocal. It's, it's mm-hmm. just beautiful listening to that yeah. interplay of, of all the instruments. Right. We were talking about George. Someone, I think, Ken mentioned George Martin and, yeah. and him being the perfect producer for them, which I think is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But it's also good that the Beatles had a veto. <laughs> Um, over his ideas, because I think if it was up to him, he, even though he wrote that score, he wouldn't have put Within You, Without You on Pepper. And he definitely wouldn't have put Revolution Number no. 9 on the White Album. He referred to it once as Scribble. So, <laughs> yeah. Did George Martin uh, pref- wish the Beatles uh, had c- kind of whittled the White Album down to be one solid single album? He's, he says that in the yeah, anthology, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and they and they were. Remember, there was that great sequence, great sequence where he he talks about. Yeah, I think it it would have been a fine single album, and Paul says, "Yeah, I'm getting tired of hearing people say <laughs> white album, single album. It's the white album. It's the Beatles. Shut right. up." <laughs> right? Just like that. You know, Ken, was I was thinking moment. about what you were saying about Julia. Uh-huh. Uh, that opening line. Uh, that's. Uh, an interesting line to open a song there's no first of all there's no uh, acoustic or or uh, instrumental beginning to the song it starts right out where he declares mm-hmm. half of what i say is meaningless right mm-hmm. that says a lot that's just mm-hmm. a powerful line uh, to open up this particular song and uh, i don't think anyone could have re- i mean just <laughs> it's just an incredible way to open up a song like that from a songwriter like that to make that kind of declaration. Right. And if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. if I remember my uh, Mark Lewis and uh, Beatles recording sessions book uh, correctly, that was the last track recorded for the White Album. And it was recorded in the wee hours of the morning of the basically the last day that they were able to, uh, uh, you know, complete the album and get it out you know for the you know the the christmas market mm-hmm. yeah well these are all great choices that yeah. all of us have come up with that puts a wrap on this show and uh if any of you would like to get in touch with us we have an email address which is things we said today radio show at gmail.com if you would like to get in touch with me, my email address is everylittlething at att.net. Please make sure you check out my website, kenmichaelsradio.com. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, Steve, they can do so how? Uh, Beatlesexaminer at gmail.com, and I'm also all over Facebook. Al, how about you? Uh, same thing, my Facebook page and uh, also my Twitter, uh, asus49. And I still have the 1965 uh uh, 365 reasons why 1965 is the single greatest year in the history of rock and roll. I still have that going every day. Have you got those all worked out? (laughs) Um, actually, no, actually, I don't know until that morning what I'm going to, what I'm going to use. No, it's it's very ad lib. Okay. 
and it's not in any order either. It's just simply, you know, I mean, it's chronologically, it's it's in order. It's you know, basically, what was, you know, what was a hit at this at this point, uh, using basically the New York centric. Uh, charts from WAVC and WMCA, but until uh, until I actually peruse the chart, I don't know what I'm going to use that particular day, which kind of makes I, it you know a little bit of a a little bit of a challenge, but also kind of neat. Living on the edge, rediscovery. Yes, yes yeah. exactly. Yeah. Alan, how about we- you? Okay, well, I'm on Facebook as either Alan Cozen or Alan Cozen Remixed, and um, on Twitter, at Cozen, so easy to find. And Darren? Uh, you could go to my Facebook page, which is Darren DeVivo on WFUV Radio. That's uh, the page that I like people to join me at, and uh, I can be heard on WFUV 6 p.m. Monday through Friday, and uh, also on weekends at our FUV Music channel, which is 90.7 FM HD2, or uh, you could stream it at WFUV.org on 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., and again, 6p to 9p, Saturday and Sunday, and my email address is my name, Darren DeVivo at WFUV.org. Okay, and I failed to mention that we have our own Facebook page here for this show, for things we said today. And I have my own, too, under Ken Michaels. All right, so this has been great. Some really good uh, suggestions here. Some great choices overall from everybody. And we love your feedback, too, all of you listening to our show. So once again, our email address is things we said today, radio show at gmail.com. This has been great. Darren, thanks so much for joining us again. I'm uh, I'm glad I passed the audition last week and that you guys asked me back <laughs> for today. And I you hope to be back it. again soon. Uh, you definitely will. All right. Okay. So, for things we said today, I'm Ken Michaels, being joined by Steve Marinucci, Alan Cozen, Al Sussman, and Darren DeVivo. Thanking you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Next time.